Well, we're continuing in our series in Colossians, the book of Colossians, and uh, we're in chapter 1 still. If you're, if there's a reading schedule to read through the book of Colossians during the summer. Some days it's one or two or five verses, some days even one verse, you know, some days a little more than that. But if you want to grab on the way out, I noticed in the back, some of the back tables by the doors and even out in the lobby at the Have We Met table, there's a yellow sheet that just gives you the schedule. Uh, it's also on the webpage, the church's website, and you can keep up with this reading. It's really quite fun to be able to relax and read with depth and uh, to comp- contemplate some of what uh, we're reading together. And the whole church is going to be reading that together So uh, at the same time as you. So if you want to do that, certainly encourage it. And then we're preaching as we move through. Today we're in chapter 1, and we'll be dealing with verses 15 through, 20, uh, 15 through 24, I believe it is. Uh, my Bible doesn't make it real clear where the verse markings are. 15 through 24. If you have the Bible on your phone or your apparatus, go ahead and open that up to Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. If you'd like to, and we encourage this, actually touch a book, there should be Bibles underneath the seats in front of you or behind you. Uh, Grab one of those and open up to the book of Colossians, a letter to the people of the city of Colossae from Paul, uh, introduced by Pastor Jeff. The last time he preached, he gave us some of the background on that. And we're moving a little bit verse by verse and slowly and enjoyably through this book. Now, I'm thinking as I'm reading this last week, my goodness, this is really about job descriptions, this book. We all have job descriptions. You know that, right? Everybody has a job description. Whether you realize it or not, each of us has one. And some are official and formal. And some of those job descriptions we have are casual and assumed, but everyone has one. Everyone has one. I was looking at some statements of job descriptions. They were kind of fun. Uh, A group of people were asked, now put your job description in one line, one sentence, and uh, I'm going to read some of those things. They were pretty funny, actually. I'm going to read the sentence, the thing the people, the, the professionals wrote. And you try to guess, see if you can figure out which job that one is describing. The job descriptions in one sentence. These are actual records of what people wrote when asked to put their job description in one line. Here's one. Stand on a field and get yelled at for hours. Any guesses as to what that job is? It's a referee. It's an umpire, a baseball umpire. Stand on a field and get yelled at for one hour. Now, raise your hand if you've ever contributed to that job description being fulfilled. I have. When I get those special seats behind home plate. If you had one more eye, you'd be a cyclops. Come on, man. I love yelling at the umpires. How about this one? Talk in other people's sleep. And you're thinking, preacher. That's the preacher's job. It's a college professor, actually, that (laughs) I have really contributed to that one. You know those great big university classes that have 300 people in the auditorium, one person up there lecturing about something that doesn't feel real relevant? I am that guy that stopped the lecture with this noise. (laughs) Yep. How about show people how beautiful the earth would be without them? 
It was a nature photographer that put that as her job description. Make people feel really bad about their work. It's a job description as stated by a quality assurance tester. (laughs) Here's my favorite. This is actually written. Make food that's healthier when it comes out of your body than it was the day it went in. A McDonald's employee. That was a McDonald's employee. No offense to those of you who might own fast food companies that were just their assessment. I was reading those those and enjoying them. But I got the question, I wonder if the, we have an election coming up, all the buzz about who's gonna be the next president. What's the president's job description? Does the president of the United States anywhere have a job description? I have one, Jeff has one, Ben has one. We hold each other accountable for them. We go through them all the time. How are you doing with this part of your job description, Ben? Fine, how are you doing with this part of yours, Art? How can we help? We go through. Does the president have a job description? The answer is yes. The president of the United States has a job description. It's found in the Constitution. It's in Article 2, Sections 2 and 3. And here's what it says the president's job description is. Because everyone has a job description. Ten points. One, the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States. Most of us knew that. Did you know that this is the rest of that line? And of each state's militia when the nation has need of it. I I didn't remember that that was there. Point two, has power to obtain information and opinions from heads of the executive departments. Point three of the president's job description may grant pardons and reprieves for crimes against the United States. Four, makes treaties with other countries with the approval of the Senate. Five, appoints ambassadors, federal judges, and heads of executive departments, all subject to the approval of the Senate. The president also has power to fill any vacancies that may happen while the Senate is in recess. Point six of the president's job description must report to Congress from time to time about the State of the Union and recommend whatever measures he or she thinks are necessary. Point seven, may call members of Congress together on extraordinary occasions, as well as adjourn their meetings when they can't agree on their own about when to do this. Uh, he probably uses number seven a lot about when Congress can't agree. Number eight, receives foreign ambassadors and other public officials. Number nine, is responsible for enforcing the nation's law. And number 10, the president issues commissions to all officers of the United States. The president of the United States even has a job description found in the Constitution. Everybody has a job description. Presidents, pastors, parents, preschoolers, everyone. And as I implied earlier, even Jesus, because I asked the question this week too, is Colossians 1 a sort of a job description for Jesus? Does it lay out some of the things Jesus was to accomplish, focus on? And I think it would be fun to look at that text in that way. Would you stand please? Let me read this text. Stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm starting in Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God the Father, by the way, the Bible gets a little bit lazy and presumptive with its language. It'll slip into, slip into, it'll sometimes say the word God, and it really means more technically God the Father. So those become synonymous at times in Scripture. Because Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God. Sometimes when referring to God the Father, the Bible simply just says God. You have to figure that out by context. Verse 19, for God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Christ's blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, the author of this letter, have become a servant. May God add his blessing to his holy, his fully inspired word. Let's dig into it a little bit. Go ahead and take your seats. The job description of Jesus, this book is all about Jesus. Jesus, you'll see without reading very far, is the center of the book of Colossians. The people of Colossae had begun to question all kinds of things about, okay, well, how do we experience God? Might it be through angels and these different things that we might experience ourselves when we're praying or worshiping? And maybe Jesus is so high that we need an intermediary between us and Jesus, who is the intermediary between humanity and the Father. And Paul, among other things, is writing to say, let's get clear about what you need and about who Jesus is. And here he's talking about who he is by referencing some of what he does and has done. It's a job description, really. And what does Christ's job description look like? What are the points of it? Well, here's number one. Verses 15, and then if you look further at verse 19, one of the responsibilities of Jesus, the functions of Jesus, is to model. More specifically, model for humanity what God looks like, what God feels, how God feels about people, how God responds to injustice, what things really matter to God. When people are saying, I wonder who God is, I wonder how God loves Jesus is living so that the answer to that question is this. Look at Jesus. Model it. It says in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. And then down in verse uh, 19, for God was pleased, God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile himself to all things. 
So he is the fullness of God. Jesus is. Jesus is God. Christianity is presenting a theology that says Jesus is fully God. He's not God 1A. He's not God 1B. He's not a great prophet only. He is God, 100% God. So that idea of incarnation is God taking on flesh, expressing himself, and that would be a theologically insufficient term to say that Jesus expresses God, but it boggles my mind to get just the right term. You can't get just the right term. Jesus is God on earth. The fullness in chapter 1, it says, it was God's pleasure for the fullness to dwell in Jesus. But the same statement is made with more specificity in chapter 2. It was God's pleasure, I believe it's verse 9, for the fullness of deity, that word of, that phrase of deity is absent in chapter 1, it's there in chapter 2, fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus, but in bodily form. Part of Christ's job description is to show us what God looks like to show us what God smells like, to show us how God feels, to show us what God values. Things like justice and mercy, tenderness, redemption, rescuing people. Todd, I need a glass of water. Uh, if you can get me one, thanks. <coughs> Appreciate that. So Jesus is modeling God. That's why maybe in in John 14, you'd read and be a bit perplexed. Jesus wasn't perplexed. Jesus is asked the question, show us God the Father. And he says, and that was Philip, he says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? <laughs> you want to see God? Just look at me, we're, we're the same dude. We're the same guy. So part of his job description, go and model to humanity what the invisible God actually looks like, feels like, believes, show us his convictions, so on and so forth. Point two in the job description of Christ. If you look at verse 16, you read this. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and through him. They've been created for him. The text tells us there's nothing trying to go out of its way to say that he is the creator. There's nothing that's been created that hasn't been created by Jesus. All things were created. So that's the second point in his job description, to create. And we have a record of the creative process of the heavens and the earth and of human beings and all the things that inhabit the earth in Genesis, early Genesis, as well as a record or a description of how things that were created as good became corrupted. But Jesus creates all that's good. Then subsequent to that creation, it's corrupted. But Jesus is always in the process of constructing new expressions and measures of the nature of God. Here's a concept that I've been toying with for myself, just trying to figure out the connection between the way we live and, and thinking theologically. What if, don't take this to the bank, but what if, just think about it. What if every action of every human is a, whether knowingly or not, is a theological statement, a statement about God? 
And all those actions either represent, thank you, brother. They either represent an accurate statement about the nature and character of God or an inaccurate one. For instance, we know that marriage is somehow a theological expression and statement. That's pretty clear in Scripture. There's creation, and there's God creating, and then early on, connected to the context of creation, he creates male and female, and then he brings them together, and he talks about, for that reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the man and the woman come together, and they cleave, they're made into one. There's something theological going on there. It's right in the context of who God is and what God does. So my, what if the way I treat Brenda my wife, every minute I, every action I take is a theological statement. What if I think of it in that way? So as I often am, what if I'm short or cynical with her or angry with her? I hung up on her the other night when we were talking. I'm not supposed to do that, huh? No, I just hung up on her and pushed this button. It was more honest than what I used to do on the cell phone, and I'd get upset and didn't want to talk anymore, and I'd all of a sudden go, you're breaking up. Fake like there was a bad connection, but I'm forgiven. But I'm thinking, I was short with my wife right there. I mean, sort of the conversation was over, but it wasn't the polite way I'd want to be having a conversation. And how is that a theological statement? How does that kind of treatment for my wife in that moment, which normally would be sort of insignificant, what if it really isn't? And what if everything we do is a theological statement? And I ask the question, what theological statement that I just make about God by the way I just treated my wife or whoever it might be on the other uh, end of the line? Everything that we do is a theological statement. And what if God is still creating in us the ability to make more appropriate theological statements. Creating expressions and measures of the nature of God. Part of Christ's job description is to create. But I'm convinced that that's not just about what has happened already, but that he's still creating. That one of the most beautiful and perfect expressions of who God is, is to create something new and beautiful. That's why I love art. That's why I think school districts, anybody in here making those decisions, are absolutely out of their stinking minds. When the first things they remove from the programs, when we start to get budget crunches, are the artistic things, teaching children poetry and painting and sculpting and music and those kinds of things that create the soft edges around pliable Hearts. That's a theological statement when a painter paints or a singer sings or a poet writes. Theological statement because God is creator. He's all over creation. God cannot show up without creating and he's still creating. Third point in the job description of Jesus. Look at verse 18, the last part of verse 18. He is the head, Jesus, of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This idea of being the head of the body, the church. Jesus leads. So he models, he creates, and he leads what he created. Giving direction to what he started. We as pastors are responsible for what we teach. You are responsible for what you teach and the way you represent God to people. But as pastors, we need to remember 
all the time. We're not really the leaders of the church. We're, we're lieutenant pastors. The real leader of the church is Christ. So we're stuck with this crazy, impossible task of trying to figure out or hear what the leader wants for the leader's church and then representing that here and we together do our best to move in that direction, which has all sorts of things connected to it. Like, can you trust us? Do we live in such a way that you can trust us? And are we being biblical and are we discovering together where the Lord wants us to go? But how does that kind of leadership work when we're sort of trying to discover together for the body what the Holy Spirit's saying to the church, yet the leaders still have to lead? It's really a fun task, uh, but we're not the leaders. Jesus is the leader. Sometimes I sit in my quietness and say, Lord, we're going to do this, and I'm not sure we're right. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I got that interpretation right, or Ben and Jeff and I get, we're not sure. But we still have to make a decision, and we still have to lead the church someplace, and the church expects us to lead. So I'll say prayers like this. If I got this one wrong, have mercy on me. Have mercy on the church. Protect them from our best efforts that weren't the right efforts. If we got this one wrong. But I'm pretty convinced that a greater sin is passivity and not doing anything to move the church in a particular direction. So what we do, since he is the leader of the church, is we lean into the task of trying to discern what the leader's saying, humbly submitting, if we can be humble about it, submitting ourselves to that task, being aware of the fact that we are responsible for leading, but we're not really the ultimate leaders. And then, come on, let's go someplace together that we think is right. Do the best we can. But he is the leader. We are under shepherds uh, at best. Model, create, Lead, look at verse 18 again. Defeat. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. I hope you recognize that that language of firstborn from the dead that's resurrection language. That's a reference to the resurrection. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life. Says, here's how you live. Here's what I always intended. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's what I always intended. All the Old Testament prophecies and everything you've read, they're all sort of pointing and rolling downhill to the life of Christ. And then he surrenders himself because one of his jobs is to defeat death once and for all. He surrenders himself after having lived the life none of us could pull off, lived it for us. But he's not done yet. He wanted to do more than just say, here, here's an example of how to live and how to make moral decisions. And he surrenders himself, lays down his life, is killed, so that on Friday, when he was hanging on the cross, his taunters were saying things like, ha, ha, Look at you now. Where are all those angels you could have called? Look at you now with your big talk. Going to build the temple and destroy the temple and you're the 
King, you're the Messiah. Look at you now, defeated one. That's on Friday. But by Sunday morning, Jesus was standing on two feet saying, how do you like me now? <laughs> because he defeated death once and for all. He's the first born from the dead saying, I'm alive and it's my intention that everyone I created also be alive. Fear death no more. It does not have the last word. That was in Christ's job description and he fulfilled his job description. Here's how you live. Attach yourself to my life but also attach yourself to my surrender of my life. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and climb your hill to where your cross will be planted in the ground. Identify with me in my death and identify with me in my resurrection. And we will all live forever. That's the whole point. He defeats death. And then there's this last piece that I want to point out on his job description. It was more vast than this. Just pointing out a few things. Verse 13, which is before the specific text we were reading, starts to introduce us to this idea that part of Christ's job description is to restore what's been broken and flawed. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Trying to find different ways to say the same thing. It's redemption, it's the forgiveness of sins, it's restoration, it's saving, it's healing, it's rescuing, whatever it might be. And then jump down to verse 21. Once you were alienated from God, and you were, in effect, enemies in your minds because of your behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. That's the transaction that has taken place. It was part of Christ's duty, his job description. He has gone to where we have chosen to be and are in effect doomed to be in this place called darkness where you cannot see to put one foot in front of the other. You just can't even see the trail. You're stumbling all around, bumping into everything that's near you. And he reached down. When we call upon him and say, hey, I want in on this. Rescue me. Help me, Lord. He says here, he reaches and grabs us and plucks us out of that kingdom and transitions us, places us, into an authority, under an authority or into a kingdom or into a way of life where we can actually see to take the next step where things make sense. It doesn't mean we're automatically perfect and never make another mistake, but it's a kingdom full of hope. I transitioned you. And then it says that this is the crazy mercy, miraculous part. He presents Jeff Mazzarello and Emily Mazzarello and Linda Mazzarello and Tommy Mazzarello and all the Mazzarello kids. Anna, Brooke, plucked them from over here and now brings them over here. And then the scripture says he presents them to the Father. He presents us who have placed our faith in Christ to the Father as unblemished. Boom. Pure and clean and worthy of the presence of God. Whose work did that? Talk to me. Whose work did that? Jesus his cross did that. His death 
did that. His resurrection did that. That's the gospel. Who received the gift that launched Jesus into the plucking? We did. We hear the gospel and we say, I want to hide myself in that cross. I don't know how to get unblemished any other way. Pluck me, Lord. Transition me, Lord. That's the gospel. He repairs what's broken. He restores us. Job description of Jesus. What if Jesus, I asked myself, were to put his job description in just one line or less? I think he did, actually. A couple of places, one of which is in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus comes into the temple, takes up the scroll, sits down to teach, opens it up, and he says, in effect, here's my job description in one line or less. Reads from the great prophet and then says, in that context, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do a few things. To preach good news to the poor. Release for the imprisoned. That's release for those who are held at knife point, is literally what that says. Have a knife at their throats. Recovery of sight for the blind. There's that transition from the kingdom of darkness where you can't see to the kingdom where the lights are turned on, where you can see. Freedom to the oppressed. And the year of the Lord's favor, as though he's saying, he came, he sent me to proclaim this is what I'm about. I'm trying to announce the year of the Lord's favor. That is to everybody. God wants to have favor on you now. He loves you now. He wants you close to him, cheek to cheek. Kiss him on the lips, close to him now. That's all available to you now. This is the year, this is the time. You don't have to wait. This was it. That's what he would say is his job description in a sentence. So we've been asking the question at the end of each of these teachings, so what's the point? And of course, we all understand these aren't the only points. One of many, maybe a forever list of points. But here's the point where I'd like to land today in answering the question, so what's the point of all of this? The point is that his job description has now become our job description. The point is that the spirit of the Lord that anointed Jesus is now upon the church to pull off that job description. The point is that the church is now challenged to and charged with the responsibility of Proclaiming the good news wherever people are impoverished, impoverished by any definition, spiritually impoverished, not enough hope in their lives, not enough to go around on the table, feeling like my ethnicity means I'm left out and I'm blind and invisible. You know why the church cannot sit still and watch what's happening? Because we know better. Because our job description says, in fact, every creation of God is precious, worth something, whether they agree with you or not, 
whether they're living like they've ever heard of God or not, the very fact that they're human means the church should stand up for them and say, not on our watch, not happening. That's the job description we have. Anywhere anybody is feeling impoverished by any definition should not be tolerated by the church of Christ because it would not be tolerated by Jesus. It's now our responsibility to work for the release of those who are held captive by hopelessness. The church has got to be in that. Bring recovery of sight to those who just can't see. We work hard to say, here, let's try to make the gospel of Jesus, the invitation, seeable, receivable, acceptable. We're not going to change the message, but is there some way that maybe we can help, help you see so that you can at least make an intelligent decision about whether to receive this news or to reject it or put it on hold for later? Because blindness needs to be addressed, including our own blindness, folks. There's plenty of it to go around, right? I've got enough for all of us. To work for the freedom of those who are held down by oppression. To make sure everyone knows that the Lord longs to favor them. Wants to have a serious relationship with them right here and now. The point is that that job description is now the church's responsibility. Jesus handed it off to us. It's time we quit fumbling it. Now, Isaiah 6 introduces us to a powerful experience that Isaiah had in a dream. I want to read that to you. And then we're going to finish our time together with some prayer and reflection around a couple of themes that may or may not be relevant for you, but they'll be relevant for some of us, that take the so what of this and let us at least pray into it. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read Isaiah 6, and then Michael is going to strum and play a little tune with a, with a response. And we're going to have movements of prayer that are spoken, and then the whole congregation will sing the response that Michael uh, teaches us after I read this text. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. With two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I guess that in the real unhindered presence of God, that's about all you can sing. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. And your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Plucking. Planting. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And as I imagine it, Isaiah looked to make sure he was still the only one in the room. 
And he responded the way I'm going to encourage us to respond. Michael will show us how. Here am I, Lord. Send me. I got this job description. Send me. We're going to pray through a few movements. And when I state the movement, our response is like this. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. When my spouse Lord, seems distant. Our romance seems to have ended. And my marriage needs a hero. Here am I, Lord, send me. Stand, would you? Here am I, Lord, send me. My girlfriend needs an example of someone who will love her unselfishly instead of just use her unceasingly. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. When my heart is drifting toward resentment, revenge dominates my thinking. And someone needs to break this chain of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Someone needs to break that chain. Here am I, Lord, send me. the world is full of contempt for those whose opinions are different, whose votes are different, with arrogant prejudice toward those who look different. And Lord, when the world is full of all that and you are looking for someone to stand up and put their foot down instead of succumbing to the temptation to join in to the hatred here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. you can sense the relevance, the connection between applications like that, like those, and the agenda, the job description of Jesus that has now been laid on the church. We are anointed for this. These things are not 
feeling as though they're possible, but we are anointed for this. The Holy Spirit fills us. God creates new chips to put in us and new abilities. He can create a brand new love where love has been destroyed because he's still a creator. Let's end with this prayer. Lord, we understand our call as being the carriers of your baton, the pursuers of your agenda is severe. But in all honesty, God, do you understand the challenge of it? I, I, mean, I think we all know that you do understand it, but can you get in touch with that, the challenge of it? Can you reach back into the most challenging moment in history when you were walking the earth and get in touch again with just how difficult it is to believe that we can be more than we already are? especially in these times of cultural and moral decay. They look an awful lot like the world looked when you were walking it. Anoint us for that task, Holy Spirit, for we are not only aware that our job description is now your job description, that we're sharing that, but that the fulfillment of it is an impossibility without the longings of heaven in our hearts, the thoughts of heaven in our heads, and the voice and force of heaven in our hands. Do the impossible work of equipping us. We pray in the name of the God of the impossible, the name of Jesus. Amen.